Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Ada Lamone from the closing night of the 2022-23 Portland Arts and Lecture Series. Lamone is the author of six books of poetry and a winner and finalist for numerous prizes for her work. In 2022, Lamone published a collection of new poems, The Hurting Kind, and was named the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States at the age of just 46. Of this recognition, Lamone said, quote, Again and again, I have been witness to poetry's immense power to reconnect us to the world, to allow us to heal, to love, to grieve, to remind us of the full spectrum of human emotion. I am humbled by this opportunity to work in the service of poetry and amplify poetry's ability to restore our humanity and our relationship to the world around us. In her talk, Lamone takes us back to her lonely childhood in Sonoma, California, where she first connects with nature, begins to discover the power of what she calls paying attention, and first falls in love with language. Throughout her talk and throughout her work, Lamone calls on us to slow down and really look at the world and our lives, to take a moment to breathe. She demonstrates over and over again how poetry, with its attention to details and its structure of line breaks, provides, as she says, no answers, but rather an unclaimed space for human fullness. In making her case for poetry, Lamone is unpretentious, accessible, funny, dark, insightful, and ironic. It is a case I think we should all urgently consider to resist the overwhelm and speed of the challenges we face because, perhaps, the answers we will need for our times just might come from the subtle details that are right in front of us, if we can just make the time to pay attention. Here is U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Lamone at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. Hello, hello. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I was very pleased that we had real traditional Portland weather for me. <laughs> like, what was I going to do if it was, you know, 75 and sunny? I'd have to move here, I guess. <laughs> I prepared an original talk for you, and uh, I finished it just a little while ago. It was funny because I uh, literally kept thinking... You know, I make sure that I, I want to do something new. I want to do something I haven't done before. And then um, this came to mind. So I hope you like it. I've titled it. I guess all good talks have a title. So we'll start there. And I laughed that the, la the very last page just says, thank you. <laughs> so that's uh, when you'll know it's over. <laughs> Um, a Complicated Love on Poetry and Nature. As you might expect, in this public role that I have as the Poet Laureate of the United States, I advocate for poetry. I advocate for how it humanizes us and complicates us and makes room for mystery and wonder and unease. I love poetry, so advocating for poetry isn't hard for me. I believe in it. I believe we will all be made better by reading it and writing it. The argument for it is, to be banal, easy. Yeah, read poetry, and you will feel as if the doors of the world are opening. And still, there are times when advocating for poetry is difficult, sure, because we also need so many things. When I say need, I don't mean desire, but deeply need. Housing, shelter, healthcare, safety, equity, justice, peace, 
all the things we need. And here I am saying, you should read a line or two of poetry. It can feel a bit naive, to say the least, even a bit unhinged. But tonight, I want to suggest that it's not naive to believe in poetry's power. Poetry works in tandem with all the other necessities. The urgent issue that is at the forefront and is interconnected to everything is, of course, the planet itself. I want to make a case for reading and writing poetry as a way to reconnect to the natural world. Not everyone has the same relationship with poetry that I do. I recognize that. I've been writing poetry and reading poetry for over 30 years now. And not everyone has the relationship I have with nature either. I am from Sonoma, California, and I grew up in a place where nature was in everything that we did. Everywhere around us was nature and wilderness, the hills that were around the high school track, the oak trees by my elementary school, the vineyards even, all that was alive and interwoven into the days. Meanwhile, I have a good friend who was raised in Louisville, Kentucky, who said, I never liked nature because the woods were where bad things happened. If you were to find a body, you'd find that body in the woods. <laughs> and there is no denying that when someone asked her to write about nature, she wasn't all too peaceful about it. And I have friends that grew up in urban settings so that even a potted plant in front of a deli was as rare of a find as a sense of reciprocity with what we might call wilderness. And yet, we too are nature. As human animals, we are, whether we know it or not, or whether we like it or not, in relationship to non-human animals. And not unlike being in relationship with one another, that can give us a sense of wholeness, of belonging, or even of community. Am I saying that one must read or write poetry about a tree in order to love a tree or connect to that tree? No, but I am saying that it can help, and that that sense of connection can help us feel less alone, less separate and isolated from the world, something every study, podcast, and article is saying we need right now, a sense of wholeness. When I was a young child, I liked most to be outside, even in the rain. I liked to hide under the acacia trees and watch as the world around me turned green and wet from California storms. Sometimes I had a friend with me, my best friend Sarah E. from grade school, but mostly I was alone. I'd live in my imagination, watching each leaf and ant and caterpillar, but also turning everything into something new. I loved not only the natural world, but how the mind altered with every individual image. The moss that hung down from the oaks was lacy, and I could imagine it was hung there by some mythical creature set out to decorate the world. That's where I first became attached to nature. Not only the world I could see, but the world I imagined. In some ways, that is where I first began to become acquainted with the poetic mind. It was about that time I remember finding the book Water Babies by Charles Kingsley. And to be honest, I don't remember that book at all. But I do remember the poem that served as the epigraph. I didn't know what an epigraph was, and I didn't know it was an excerpt from a poem. I thought it was the whole poem. But none of that stopped me from knowing that I loved it and that it mirrored exactly how I felt when I was hiding in my, in my trees, being alone in the understory, away from the cruelty of other children or the chaos of the classroom. The poem's excerpt went like this. I heard a thousand blended notes while in a grove I sat reclined, in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to mind. To her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran, and much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. It wasn't until much later in college that I found out that the poem was written by Wordsworth, and that it was written in April of 1798, or that the title was Lines Written in Early Spring. 
I only knew that it was my favorite part of that book, the part that was written not in sentences, but in lines, and that I loved how it rhymed, yes, like a little song. But more than all of that, I loved that it gave language to a feeling that I could not speak of or didn't know how to speak to in any coherent way. It was the feeling that even being in a beautiful place, one can feel sad or lonely or not even lonely, but empty or worried. That was all in the line, in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind. I thought, yes, I have been sad. I am sad right now, though I don't know how to explain it. And then, of course, the poem moves to say, if we are nature and I am linked to nature, why does the human being, the human animal, do what it does? Why has it caused such harm? That's how I read the lines, to her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran, and much to grieve my heart to think what man is made of man. I understood that grief, the way I watch kids be unkind to each other. Julian and Tucker and Jesus, who were all kind when they were in kindergarten, and then as they aged, they grew up cruel to each other, and they all seemed like they were suffering for no reason. When the birds in the trees didn't seem to be suffering or in pain. Of course, these were childhood thoughts before I knew the agonies of history and war, slavery and genocide, the climate crisis. But still, what man has made of man made sense to me. And even as a child, I grieved for it too. The question at its core was, if nature can provide this ease and we are a part of nature, where did we all go wrong? I never studied this poem formally, or even knew it was something to be studied. I just found it in a book and carried it around with me and never really read the rest of the book. <laughs> I would stand by the floor heater in the dark hallway before anyone was home and I'd try to memorize it. I was always cold back then, I don't know why. But I'd sit almost on top of the heater and practice these words. I knew it was a poem, but mainly I knew it made me feel less alone. The great thinker and writer James Baldwin once said, you think your pain and heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. And that's what that poem did to me, even then, a little brown girl in California understood what a white man in England who had died over 150 years ago was saying, and I felt it too. Poetry all these years later has said to me, yes, me too, I have seen that too, I feel that too. And there's an immense power in that. Maybe there's a little hope too. Because in feeling seen or understood, there's a sense that we can be in community with others, that one won't go mad with isolation or otherness. That experience with the poem by Wordsworth gave me a sense of belonging. I thought if other people could write and feel this way, if other people could feel connected to the world, then maybe I could be okay. Maybe I belonged here on this planet after all, in this world. And it's not just belonging that we can get from poetry and nature combined, but a sense of wonder. I've made that argument before that what makes poetry such an essential art form is that it doesn't provide answers, but instead provides an untamed space for the fullness of the human experience. And you don't have to know everything that's going on in a poem in order to love it. Just like you don't have to know the names of the trees in the forest to love the forest. You can just be in the forest and breathe. And you can stand inside a poem and breathe. That's where wonder is found, not in the answers or the knowing, but in the curiosity and mystery. The poet Carl Phillips writes in his poem, the same in sun as it felt in shadow, to envy a wilderness as opposed to becoming one. He has learned the difference how all the more powerful parts to a life as to art as well, when it's worth remembering, resists translation. Whence comes their power? 
My trade is mystery. This song I also call mystery, he says to himself, half singing. I love this poem, as I do many of his poems. But this one in particular, because of the idea that the world itself resists translation. And so poems themselves resist translation. One of my favorite things about poetry is that you can get a group of poetry professors, Pulitzer Prize winning poets, poets laureate, what have you, all together, and none of them can really tell you what a poem is. We can tell you what a poem does, and how it moves, and how it makes you feel, but what even is it? That's harder to say. It's not unlike going into the woods and trying to say out loud what the woods are. You can begin by naming the trees and the plants and the understory, the lichen, the moss, the humus that covers the ground. You can talk about the mother trees and the fungus and the mycorrhizal networks, but you can stand in the middle of the woods and really say, I don't know what this is or exactly what I'm feeling. The same goes for poetry. The wonder is part of the art form. And just like breath is built into the line breaks, wonder is built into the poem itself. Here, I must insert a side note. While writing the end of that paragraph, I left the screen door to the screened-in porch ajar, and a bumblebee came in. We are now getting our bees out in Kentucky. The viburnum is blooming, all the violets and sweet williams, and the lusty blossoming galore is bringing the bees back. I stopped what I was writing. The sentence was, in case you've forgotten, wonder is built into the poem itself. And just then, a bee came up to me and tried to land on my knee. I am not scared of bees, though I've been stung often enough to hold some slight fluttering in the heart when one hovers near me. Still, I was mainly scared it would die inside the screened-in porch without food or a water source. And so I broke from what I was writing for all of you and carefully guided the bee outside. As soon as I did, I thought of the lines from the Yeats poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean bows will I have there, a hive for a honey bee, and live alone in a bee-loud glade. I will spare you my Yates impression, <laughs> though it is hilarious. <laughs> and when served martinis, I might be coaxed into it. Gin, dry, three olives. But why these lines came to me was that every time I was having a hard time living in the vertical towering showers, towers of New York City, a small suffering speck amongst the concrete and glass, I would say to myself this poem. And it was something I held in my heart, that someday I would live alone in the Be Loud Glade. And today, nearly 13 years later, after leaving Brooklyn and living in Kentucky, I was suddenly thinking, hey, do I live in a bee-loud glade? I might live in a bee-loud glade. Why I'm saying this to you now, aside from the fact that this all happened right as I was writing this for you here tonight, I am saying this because the poem and their wonder is what stuck with me. Not the facts of them. Not the fact that it was Innisfree, or that Yeats was more city-bound anyway, or that the sound, it is that the sound is almost like the bubbling stream that live alone in the bee-loud glade. That sound that falls over us part, is part of wonder. It has mystery, yes, but it also has music. The music of the forest or the ocean or the birds, we don't know what to make of it all the time either, but we can recognize it, hold it inside of us, and recall it even when we are furthest from it. Wonder not only comes from music, but also a type of surrender that's often larger than us. In our daily lives, we crave answers and things that will fix and heal and make us feel immediately better on all levels. I want that. I want to be healed and feel immediately better on all levels. 
But sometimes we also just need to be simply shaken up. The surprise of the poem can do just that. I think of the poem by the Mexican poet Francisco Serhovia, it isn't gentleness. It isn't gentleness that you and I are looking for in the hills and valleys. It is the cliff, the gorge, the scraped ochre on the knees of the slopes and the red crevice in which the land shows too the brilliance of its wound. Here in this poem, I stand in the idea of witnessing something in action, being opened, the drama of landscape that can be both frightening and humbling. This poem, that wound at the end, brings me to the edge of the Grand Canyon or the cliffs of the Oregon coast, and I can see that sometimes we love to be swallowed whole by something greater than us. We aren't always looking for ease when we go into nature. Sometimes we are looking to be made small, made minuscule by the power of it. That is the same way sometimes we come to a poem. We stand in it not to be soothed, but to be shook. Here, I want to say that I recognize that I'm using the word we here. And we might be false. Who gets to say we? And who is left out of we? The we here is not just poetry lovers or nature lovers. And so if you are not a poetry lover, you are also welcomed here. And I want to be open that the we is not one type of person. For a long time now, the world of what we used to call nature poetry was a white world. For that matter, the world of nature was often considered a white world, a world of colonization and discovery. And so I want to be intentional about my language so that when I say we, I mean anyone who is curious about anything anyone who longs to belong. For instance, I love the national parks, and yet at the same time, I am aware that not everyone has the access or the resources to intentionally search out nature. That can feel true of poetry, too. And yet, when we come across something that's surprising, without expecting it, we can feel a sense of connection that we might have missed before. On a recent Stephen Colbert, the writer and poet Clint Smith, said poetry was the art of paying attention. And that's true. That deep looking can be a way of not only feeling connected to the world, but a way of loving the world, a way of witnessing, and a way of saying, I am here, and you are too, and what now? As Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote in Braiding Sweetgrass, paying attention is a form of reciprocity with the living world. I'm thinking now about animals and how much I love them. And sometimes when the human animal infuriates me and abandons me and confounds me, I can turn again to the animal. I need to feel that sense of reciprocity, the give and take of the world. Here might I interject another side note, because I cannot talk about the animal and paying attention and not mention that as I began this section, my cat, who is now at least 23 years old, and that is not an exaggeration. She's so old, often people say, oh wow, how old is that cat? It's true. She came downstairs where I was writing this at the kitchen table, which is my habit, when the weather is good, but not yet warm enough to sit on the porch. I am following the light, I think. We should all follow the light. My cat has now situated herself at my feet and began to purr. Every time I stare at her, she looks at me with eyes the color of stones at the bottom of a lake, part gray, part blue, part so old it's hard to know where she began and where all of time began. And she's staring at me and purring, and I think that is what we must do as poets, as people. We must stare at things and purr. She is purring even though I'm not petting her. She is purring simply because I am there and she can see me and it is a comfort to us both. And this is a connection I needed just now to see her eyes meet mine and for her to be too old to jump on the table but just sit there is a gift to me. 
You know this feeling, some of you with cats or dogs or other animals that you cohabitate with. I would right now do anything for her. For she has made this moment better just by inserting her small face into the picture. I remember the first time I read the poem Morning by Mary Oliver. Salt shining behind its glass cylinder, milk in a blue bowl, the yellow linoleum. The cat stretching her black body from the pillow, the way she makes her curvaceous response to the small, kind gesture, then laps the bowl clean, then wants to go out into the world, where she leaps lightly and for no apparent reason across the lawn, then sits perfectly still in the grass. I watch her a little while, thinking, what more could I do with wild words? I stand in the cold kitchen, bowing down to her. I stand in the cold kitchen, everything wonderful around me. That, to me, is the power of connection that nature and poetry can give us, the moment when we are not ourselves anymore, but the human animal in conversation with a non-human animal about the sheer wonders of the world, the mystery of the animal. I have long been interested in the way poems about animals reveal ourselves to ourselves and take us out of ourselves for the moment. We lift our heads to the sky. We point to a whale. We complain about the rats or the ants. But even the ants are a way for us to remember our face among the wild things, as Wendell Berry once wrote. I think of very early days in the pandemic when isolation was driving us all somewhat mad. But we did what we did to keep each other safe. I remember reading this poem by Jane Hirschfield. Today, when I could do nothing. Today, when I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in from the morning paper, still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is an essential service. I am not an essential service. I have coffee and books, time, a garden, silence enough to fill cisterns. It must have first walked the morning paper as if loosened ink taking the shape of an ant. Then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion. Small black ant alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that is what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have found its nest again. What then did I save? It did not move as if it was frightened even while walking my hand, which moved it through the swiftness and air. Ant, alone, without companions, whose ant heart I could not fathom. How is your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. The first day, when I could do nothing, contribute nothing beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this. I thought of the ant, the woman saving it, the act of the small thing, and it is this way that we are connected, united even in the isolation through care and concern. And we need connection. We are desperate for it. In a recent talk on On Being with Krista Tippett, Vivek Murthy said, because it turns out that we, that because it turns out that because we are hardwired for connection, even just a little bit of time and a little bit of investment in human connection goes a long way toward us feeling better. And it's my belief both poetry and nature can help us find connection, even when we are unable or unwilling to meet in person. It's not only connection, but community that both poetry and nature can offer us. Recently, when I was struggling with some health issues, I took a walk with my friend in Washington, D.C. through the botanical gardens. I was limping on my left foot, which was nerve pain left over from my second bout of shingles, which caused a whole overly nervy reaction from head to toe for months. We slowly walked through the orchids and bromeliads, and I vowed to write a poem with bromeliads in it how they hung on in the air like that. And my friend said she never much cared for bromeliads. And I laughed because the word bromeliad is hilarious. 
And also, who doesn't love a plant that's just built on surviving on nothing? In the small outdoor garden, we took turns sitting and meandering. Plants were just beginning to bloom, and we looked for each name of each plant. Sometimes we were very wrong, and sometimes we'd get it right and cheer ourselves on for knowing something absurdly basic. But in that moment, it struck me that each time we'd come to something new, we'd share it with one another and point it out and maybe even touch the tree or shrub if touching was allowed. There was something in that shared journey that binded us to, to each other. There was a book that came out by a Stanford professor, Jenny O'Dell, called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. I was listening to her talk on a podcast while on a walk one day, and she talked about the delight of discovering the nature in her neighborhood, not going off to some far-off place to find some pristine wilderness, but simply getting to know what was in her immediate surroundings. As I listened to her talk, I couldn't help but think, yeah, that's what poets do. It's literally our job. And discovering your surroundings can also mean being in connection with your own community, those that live alongside you, those that sometimes go unnoticed. Writing about nature and writing about your community doesn't mean that you have to be Wordsworth on a mountain, getting clear in the vision of purity and oneness with all green things. It can also mean coming to terms with the truth, whether it's racial or social justice, or who has the route to, route, the right to housing or clean water. Noticing nature around you can also be a way of noticing where the train tracks go, where the gas lines go, what neighborhoods are up against it in a different way. That noticing is just as important as noticing, say, a flower or a place where a tree goes, grows despite all the odds. I'm thinking now of the poem by Wanda Coleman, Requiem for a Nest. That winged thing built her dream palace amid the fine green eyes of a sheltering bough. She did not know it was urban turf, disguised as serenely, delusionally rural. Nor did she know the neighborhood was rife with slant-mawed felines and those long taloned swoopers of prey. She was ignorant of the acidity and oil that polluted the earth and was never to detect the serpent coiled one strong limb below. Following her nature, she flitted and dove for what, whatever blades, twigs, and mud could be found under the humming blue and created a hatchery for her spawn, not knowing all were doomed. It's a sonnet. This poem, for me, in a way, this poem moves me in a way that always surprises me. It pulls in the natural world and uses it to talk about race and safety. If said directly, this poem couldn't do what it does, couldn't do what it does so well, allow for surprise and offer an empathy and a strangeness that complicates the narrative and expands an understanding of not just nature, but human nature. Nature isn't always a safe place. Where Wordsworth or Dickinson or Sir Juana Inés de la Cruz might have walked into nature and felt a sort of oneness, a sense of possibility, that's not exactly how we feel right now. Now we see the tide, and instead of its lull or calming rhythm, we also see how it's changing, how the shoreline is receding, or what new animal life has been affected by whatever new calamity has come to meet us in this uncommon moment. But that too is nature. It is changing. So we must also change together in unison how we write about it, how we witness this moment, and also how we rise to its new and challenging demands. Mary Oliver once wrote, and that is just the point, how the world, moist and beautiful, calls to each of us to make a new and serious response. That's the big question, the one the world throws at you every morning. Here you are, alive. Would you like to make a comment? <laughs> and I keep thinking of the phrase, calls to each of us to make a new and serious response. Can poetry be a serious response? Can we stand in this urgent moment and use poetry 
as a tool not just to connect to nature, but to help us heal, grieve, adapt, and reimagine our life on this planet. If we are nature, and nature is evolving, doesn't that mean that our minds are evolving too, and have to evolve with it? And so does our language and our hearts, and we do that through poetry. The world has never needed our attention more, and we have never needed our connection to it more, and to be reminded that this earth can offer what this earth can offer and what we can offer it in return. I am not someone who believes in giving up. I think that as an artist, I don't have the privilege of giving up. What we do instead is lean in harder, find the way back into our world or deeper into our world and recognize that like Mary Oliver said, we must make a new and serious response. Right now, as I finish this talk, I am thinking of how I never have any answers, never have any wisdom to offer. But then I think, that's okay. I distrust the person that claims to know everything. And that's why I trust poems. They make room for our uncertainty and clarity in equal measures. So yes, I can talk about poetry and its power until I turn blue and all the line breaks run home and turn into sentences again. But it's not just about poetry. It's about finding the way to talk about this moment in time, this square of earth that we are standing on, the little arrow that says, you are here, and really being here. I think there's power in that. Emily Dickinson once wrote, not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. Poetry allows us to open those doors and not just tell us who we are, but where we are on this planet and in this time. If, as scientist Kate Marvel wrote, we are improbable life on a perfect planet, then isn't it our job to notice every part of this so that we might find language for this complicated love that we have for this world. That language for a complicated love, that language is poetry. I often tell my students that I'd never make them do a prompt that I couldn't do myself. And so I must practice what I preach and lead us out of this meandering talk about trees and words and the importance of trees and words with my own poem. Dead Stars. Out here, there's a bowing even the trees are doing. Winter's icy hand at the back of all of us, black bark, slick yellow leaves, a kind of stillness that feels so mute it's almost in another year. I am a hearth of spiders these days, a nest of trying. We point out the stars that make Orion as we take out the trash, the rolling containers, a song of suburban thunder. It's almost romantic as we adjust the waxy blue recycling bin until you say, man, we should really learn some new constellations. And it's true. We keep forgetting about Antlius and Taurus, Draco, Lacerta, Hydra, Lyra, and Lynx. But mostly we're forgetting we're dead stars too. My mouth is full of dust and I wish to reclaim the rising to lean in the spotlight of streetlight with you toward what's larger within us, toward how we were born. Look, we are not unspectacular things. We've come this far, survived this much. What would happen if we decided to survive more, to love harder? What if we stood up with our synapses and flesh and said no, no to the rising tides? stood for the many mute mouths of the sea of the land? What would happen if we used our bodies to bargain for the safety of others, for earth, if we declared it a clean night, if we stopped being terrified, if we launched our demands into the sky, made ourselves so big people could point to us with the arrows they make in their minds, rolling their trash bins out after all of this is over? Oh, and we have to get to the last page. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.
That was incredibly beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Speed and time are part of your talk tonight and are part of this book, and it's been, it's been such a pleasure to read all of your work for the last three months, early in the morning before my family's up, <laughs> and just really slow down. Is slowing down and that relationship to time something that's really like natural to you? Is that your default, or are you activated to find that slowdown? I mean, I, we heard about your childhood, and I could, mm -hmm. obviously that's clear where those, some of those roots are, but yeah. how does that feel now? I think I have to work at it. Mm -hmm. I think like, like many people, I have to find pockets of silence and space and um, remember to build equanimity around myself so that I can sort of see things for what they are. I, I'm a deep feeler and I'm affected by many things and so it's very easy for me to be um, overwhelmed um, by someone else's reaction or by, um, or just whatever I see in the news mm. or any little moment. But I've recognized that about myself and because of that I feel like I've, you know, now I, I build that space in to take the deep breath. You know, I've said this before but I really, um, it turns out breathing is really important. <laughs> but there's more to it than that in, in your comment that these line breaks right are part I mean poetry has breathing built into it structurally mm -hmm. right and that line break it's different than a comma oh yeah in prose yeah yeah we work in the smallest units that's the that's the most fun about poetry is that we begin we don't even begin with the syllable we begin with the sound we're like ooh, what's my favorite sound it's like shh you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And then we, then we begin with the syllable, and then we go to the clause, and then we go to the line break, and then we go to the sentence, you know? Yeah. So we, we work on a very small level, which allows for that breath work. Hmm. So it turns out you were on a call this afternoon yes. from the Benson Hotel with NASA. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. And maybe I'll just let you take it <laughs> <Yeah>. from there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was asked by NASA to write an original poem that will be engraved on the spacecraft um, Europa Clipper. Um, that will be, <laughs> thank you, yeah. It's <laughs> so cool. It's crazy. It's like, a, it's amazing. No, and it's, um, it'll go to the second moon of Jupiter, which is Europa. And um, it's uh, the second moon of Jupiter is an icy water moon, and it has, as the scientists say, all of the ingredients for life. And so they're going up there to, well, it's an unmanned spacecraft, but they'll test the water and see, um, you know, what's in it. And that information will come, come back down, and the scientists will, will look to see what's going on with it. Um, it will launch, uh, the spacecraft will launch in October 2024, um, and they, uh, the poem itself will be released in, on June 1st. It is already written, um, and you can imagine it was maybe the hardest prompt I've ever had <laughs> in my life. And I owe a lot to my husband, who was so dear and wonderful, because I kept trying to write this poem, and I, I read him draft after draft. And we were staying in W.S. Merwin's home in Maui, and so here we were in this beautiful place, and I would just walk in and like read another poem, and he'd be like, mm -hmm. and finally he looked at me and said, you know, I think you have to stop thinking of writing a NASA poem <laughs> and start thinking about writing a poem that you would want to read, mm. that you like, right? Write a poem, and I was like, right, right, of course. Like they didn't ask me to write copy. You know, yeah, like they asked me to write a poem. Yeah, right. And so, um, so I finally got there with something that I really like. And um, it took me 19, 20 drafts. And then it was just two weeks ago that they told me that they want to engrave it and like make me tear up. They want, me, they, they want to engrave it in my handwriting. Mm. So I, last week I had to write it over and over again. And if you can imagine, like if you've ever written a note card or anything, and then just like screwed up the, you know, you like, oh, I wrecked that card. Like try doing that knowing it's gonna go on a spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> 
like by the end of it, I had friends coming over and I was just like sweating. And I was like, <laughs> they were like, what is wrong? And I was like, I can't. It was so, so it took me, you know, 19 drafts to get the poem right. And then it probably took me at least that to just write it out. So, so yeah, that's, that's happening and I'm very excited about it. So amazing. And I, you can't, I, know you, I know you can't share it with us because you actually possess a state secret. <laughs> That's, is that not correct? It's true, yeah. yeah. It, it comes out June 1st, and I can't say anything about it. <laughs> I think it's so amazing that you have a state secret. It makes me so happy as an English major. Um, really, how do you channel the deep grief of being alive mm. without falling into the pits of hell? So it's a little dramatic, but I that's what you. it says. I see you. Yeah. So. Me it's too. It, it's been raining a lot in Portland, to be fair. Listen. So it's been tough. <laughs> it's been hard. I, but I think it's a great question. I, I mean, am on board with this question. And let me tell you, it is work. <laughs> it is work. Life is work, hope is work. I feel one of the biggest things that I do, because I do think, you know, that life isn't easy. We lose people, we ourselves will be lost. That the biggest thing that I do when I'm feeling, as Anne of Green Gables said, the depths of despair, is I think about what my ancestors before me went through for me to have this moment. To me, the odds of being alive, like how much it took just to be alive right now. And I think I have to do this for them, that giving up is not an option. And I also think giving up and surrender, that's the easy thing. That's the easy way out. I'm not gonna take the easy way out. <laughs> I'm gonna hope all the way through it. So I think that I do it for them, and sometimes, eventually, I can start to do it for myself again. But that's what I think about most. Maybe you're connected to that. Have you ever felt your relationship to the natural world, ever, has it ever been fractured? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that when we think about um, that's, when I was talking in the talk about like nature's not always a safe place, like how many times that nature's actually been like really terrifying, you know? Like I was in the earthquake in San Francisco. I wasn't in San Francisco, I was in Sonoma, but like there, you know, felt the earthquake. I've been in earthquakes. I've seen, um, you know, the fires in my hometown that destroyed much of the Mayakamas where I have my little apartment, um, the flooding in Eastern Kentucky feeling not only at odds with nature, but really pissed off at nature. And that fractured relationship, I think, is something that um, there's, I'm interested in that. Instead of sort of pulling away from that, I'm like, oh, what is that, how, why is that? You know, what is, why is that making me feel that? And how can I pay attention to it? Mm. So I think in the ways that I do most, you know, think about most things that I struggle with is just by unpacking it a little bit more. You know, well, it makes me frightened. It makes me feel guilty. What have we done? This is our, you know, all of these things. And to unpack that, I think, is actually really important. Because then you can kind of at least move to a place that allows for a little space around it. And on the other side of that coin is a, is a very similar question, but the opposite, which is what, is, what connects you most to nature? Hmm. My first, the first thought that came to me, and I'm trying to think of this as true, is the breath. It's literally air. <laughs> and, you know, how we are able to breathe. And the act of that, right, with plants, and the way that we, in community, how breath is. I think it's, it's breath. Yeah. What is the most surprising thing about being Poet Laureate? Or the strangest thing, or the thing we don't know? Well, the NASA thing's pretty crazy. Yeah. Okay, other than spaceships, <laughs> aside from the spaceships, what else? <laughs> um, 
I think the I think the interesting thing about it is that um, you know, as an artist, you're used to talking about your work and reading your poems, and no one is saying like you know, how is this poem going to save the world, <laughs> you know? But then when you become poet laureate, there's a certain kind of the interview question that's kind of like, now how is poetry going to heal humanity? <laughs> Wait, that was an interview question? Oh, I think it was, yeah. Oh my God. BBC. Um, that's amazing. So there's a, that was surprising, because I kept being like, well, I don't know if it can. <laughs> I love it, but it is an art form. Um, so I think that was very surprising to me. I think the other thing that's been really sort of wonderful is actually the engagement with some other the federal agencies. I think um, I've um, I, one of the one of the most beautiful things I got to do was be uh, a participate in a fandango in Mexico City as part of the North American Leaders Summit with Dr. Biden and the First Lady of Mexico, Dr. Gutierrez Mueller, and. Um, I sat on the stage in Mexico City in the Palacio Nacional, which is like the White House. And on the dais, they read my poems. And at one point, I was just very overwhelmed. And afterwards, um, uh, you know, this incredible band was playing, and there was mariachis, and it was just really incredible. And um, I was, I was very happy, and Dr. Gutierrez Muller, the first lady, looked at me and she said, you look so happy to be home. And I'm not from Mexico, I'm from Sonoma, California. <laughs> but the way she said it gave me so much joy, um, and I didn't ever think I was gonna feel that way. And that was just, it was, it was really beautiful. Mm. It was surprising to me. It's an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. We are actually out of time. Oh, wow. Went so fast. Um, we are so grateful to have had you here. Thank you so much for spending our time with us. And um, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. That was U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Lamone speaking at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in April 2023. The 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has been announced. Speakers include Zadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezukumotatil. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swim. Special thanks to the Literary Arts Marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>